Okay, good morning, everybody. Let's begin with prayer and together. Father, thank you for the good word that we've already heard this morning that lifted our hearts and our minds to the glory of the gospel, of your own humiliation on our, on our account. And thank you, Lord, for feeding us in the mysteries of the bread and the wine and sustaining our souls, Lord, and not leaving us to our own devices and imaginations when it comes to how to sustain our own spiritual health. You've, you've marked the way for us. And now, Lord, as we spend time together today reflecting on your humiliation, Jesus, on our account, I pray that you will meet with us and open your word before us so that we can behold wonderful things out of your law. And if that happens, we will know that it's because of your kindness to us in the presence of your Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come on in. There's room in the ark. You're in the spit section, I'm afraid. <laughs> you better be careful. I'll have to go back for the Menendez, too. It's a bad area. Um, so I have a two-week series that we'll do together today um, and then the week after Easter, and I thought it would be a nice kind of pair to do within classic reformational theology, which is my own training, um, to do the humiliation of Christ and his exaltation. Um, so the humiliation of Christ I thought would be a nice way of entering into um, Holy Week, and then post-Easter, uh, we'll talk about his, his exaltation. Um, and to do that, I thought it might be best for us, or maybe one of the best texts for us to engage, to give us some purchase on that humiliation that Jesus went through on our account, um, might be Isaiah 53, which will be our liturgy text for, Isaiah, for Good Friday, coming up this week as well. Um, so I'm going to do some preparatory work, and then we will get into... Um, Isaiah 53, with our accompanying music here in the back. Okay, so, um, I'll put this thesis statement out there for the day, to kind of reflect on this with you, maybe give us a point of, a point of, um, of reflection. And that is, human pride, human pride has been overcome by the humility of God. I'm going to say that again. Human pride has been overcome by the humility of God. So when you think about sin, which is a topic that I'm grateful in Advent, we talk about sin. It's not a happy topic, but it's a topic nonetheless that's at the core of our identity. When we talk about sin, there might be a tendency to be reductionistic in the way in which we understand sin. Um, but I do think that one can run that danger properly enough by understanding all of sin under the umbrella of human pride. I mean, think about the, the prologue of the primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11. What are some of the archetypal sins that we see there in Genesis 1 to 11? If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. 
And what do we see as a running late motif that goes throughout the rest of Genesis 1 to 11? That continued sort of inner urgency on behalf of humanity to be like God. Uh, if we eat that fruit, we'll be like God. So they ate the fruit and they did that. And then how does Genesis 1 to 11 end? Genesis 1 to 11 ends with the Tower of Babel. I mean, here, here is humanity in a concerted effort on the far side of the flood, right? On the far side of the flood, humanity in a concerted effort to build their own way up into the heavens, which from our standpoint just seems absurd, right? We have kind of a view of the universe now that makes that ancient uh, attempt to be like God absurd, but nevertheless, they tried. And in their trying to exalt themselves, God does what God does throughout all of the Bible in the face of human self-achievement and human self-actualization, pride. God cuts them low. He mingles their languages. He brings confusion on them that forces them to be able to disperse throughout the world so that they would no longer have the linguistic ability to have a concerted effort again to be like God. God took that away from them. And where do we move after Genesis chapter 11? Right into Genesis chapter 12. And what do we start with there? Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and through you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God in Genesis chapter 12 begins his own redemptive way of overcoming what he did in Genesis chapter 11 by dispersing the nations because of their, their various languages. So the Abrahamic covenant is God's attempt, is God's redemptive action to bring about a unified humanity around his own act of redemption. So this human pride and human self-actualization can be understood, I think, as the paradigmatic sin, human pride. The ability, the, the thought that we can actualize ourselves, that we are sufficient unto ourselves. And how is human pride overcome? Human pride is overcome by the humility of God. By God Himself determining within His own eternal counsel. Let me put it to you another way. Um, God's determination to come in human flesh in the person and work of Jesus. What we heard Canon Gibbs this morning exposit so beautifully. What we heard this morning, that display of the gospel was never plan B in God's divine economy. It was never, well, now what do we do? Right. It was always within God's own determination to be a God for humanity with an eternal determination for the second person of the Trinity to become a man. And in becoming a man, to abase himself as God by taking on human flesh and to exalt humanity by taking human flesh into the very life of God. Now, we'll get to the exaltation part. So when we talk about the humility of God in the Incarnation and the exaltation of God in, or of Jesus in His bringing humanity up into the life of the Father and the Spirit, we're talking about two realities, two sides of a singular reality. It's a better way to put that. Two sides of a singular reality. We have His humiliation and we have His exaltation. And Isaiah 52 into 53 is a great example of that for me in the Bible. Um, I've told some of you this before, but part of my earthly purgatory um, 
as a youth director, when I was a youth director, was we had a youth praise band. That was part of the way in which I was purgating my sins in this world. Um, and and uh, if there was a youth group song that we sung a lot in my youth group days, it was Our God Reigns. Do you know this one? This sort of hymn that goes, Our God... It's really a kind of beautiful song, actually. Our God Reigns, Our God Reigns. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. You know that word, good news? You know that, right? That's gospel. Evangelion. Who bring the good news. Who announce what? What's the announcement of the good news? God reigns. It's a claim about God's exaltation. He is the king. He is the king above all other kings. Everything in the world is subservient to him. He is exalted. And that is a great verse that leads right into a youth group singing at the top of their lungs, and rightly so. But that verse, we often forget its context because we blink and we're in Isaiah chapter 53. I mean, literally, we are three or four verses away from, Behold my servant. He is exalted. He is raised up. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. The servant, this enigmatic figure who begins to emerge from Israel's ancient myths and comes out as someone who's like Israel and yet not like Israel. He, this servant, is raised and exalted. Again, this language of exaltation. Raised and exalted. Those two terms, and I've said this in another context before, but I'll repeat it here, those two terms, raised and exalted, are only predicated in the book of Isaiah on God himself. No one else is raised and exalted. Do you remember the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6? I saw the Lord, what? High and lifted up. That's the same two Hebrew words there. Raised and exalted. When I saw the Lord on his throne, he was raised and exalted. Isaiah chapter 2, when Israel tries to raise and exalt themselves, same terms, God cuts them down. The end of Isaiah chapter 10, when Israel tries to raise and exalt themselves again, God comes in and he cuts them down. Only God is raised and exalted. Isaiah chapter 45, God does not, Yahweh says, I do not share my glory with anyone. It's my own. And here's, the, you'll hear this term later in Philippians. And in that same context it says, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Who? Yahweh. Which makes Philippians 2 so powerfully wonderful that those particular terms in Isaiah chapter 45 are applied directly to Jesus. And he will be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So here we see this servant figure who isn't Yahweh, but yet predicated with terms that are only solely used for Yahweh, is exalted. He's raised and exalted. He shares in the glory and the kingship and the exaltation of God himself. And then we move right into Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then we'll move on as we see how that, uh, that hymn, that song unfolds. But I want, what I want you to see here is that the exaltation and the humiliation of God in Jesus are flip sides of the same reality. He's raised and exalted, and in his raised and exalted status, he humbles himself for our salvation. Um, think about this from, in Revelation chapter 5. 
Remember, John was on the Isle of Patmos. He began to weep because there was a scroll that had seals on it. And no one was worthy to open the scroll. But then someone said, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And John says, and when I turned to see the lion, what did he see on the throne? A lamb slain from the foundations of the world. He, it was a lion that had the ability and was worthy to open that scroll. And when he turned to see the lion, the exalted one, who did he see? The humbled lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Um, I wanted to read this to you, if you don't mind, um, about, I, I, I'm taking this out of Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics. I don't like people reading to me, so I'm really sorry um, to do this. And, and this is going to be, uh, like if you're in um, third gear intellectual land, like, like my, my son William today, um, ask I me mean, just the questions in church. I'm like, William, don't ask me any more questions. Where does this poem come from? Where was this from? Was, no, so we'll have to sort of engage here. Um, there are good days in church with kids and bad days. Well, you know what today was. Here's what, here's what Bart says about the humility or the humiliation of Jesus. And you'll have, I'll, I'll try to read this carefully. To know human sin in the form of human pride, we look for the last time to the being and activity of Jesus Christ. And we now think of the final depth of His humiliation of the Son of God who cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of the one who, although he was the Son of God, died as very man, was dead and buried and lay in the tomb. And all apparently in the most marvelous contradiction, again, humiliation and exaltation, in this marvelous contradiction, but really in the most wonderful unity, the eternal and living and almighty God thrown back in the person of this man upon the free grace of God the Father, upon His unmerited justification, upon His undeserved mercy, upon the gift of His creative power believed in hope against hope. Taking our place, bearing the judgment of our sin, undertaking our case, He gave Himself to the depth of the most utter helplessness in which he could not and would not dispose even of the help of God. The depth in which he had nothing but nothingness under and behind and beside him and nothing but God before and above him. Nothingness in all its unsearchableness and power, and God as the one into whose hands he was delivered up without reservation and without claim. He the man, who was himself also the Son of God, he did this for us. This is, in its sharpest form, the humility of the act of God which took place for us in Jesus Christ. What a powerful rendering there. That's the humility of God on display for us. Jesus disposing of his own ability, of his, of his own divine prerogative, and coming in the form of a man, the Lord as a servant, and in the resurrection, the servant as the Lord. 
but He comes as the Lord as servant, bearing our lives and our shame and taking up our own sin upon Him. And by the way, our own hell, right? Our own dereliction. When John Calvin and his institutes exposited the Apostles' Creed, that one little line of the Creed that gives lots of people headaches, and he descended into hell, right? You know that line in there? I mean, I've got buddies who won't even say that, right? I don't like that one. Right? Well, when Calvin exposited the Apostles' Creed, his understanding of Jesus' descent into hell is the cry of dereliction. Where was hell for Jesus? His descent into hell is the moment when God's absence was the only thing present to Jesus. He was gone. He was absent. I've got children, middle son especially, who's asking me a lot about hell these days. The kind of questions that I just wish he wouldn't ask, but he does. Hard questions. And the way in which to talk about this, I don't, I don't know all the details. But what makes hell in the Bible so bad is the absence of the presence of God. That's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. He is in hell for you and for me. So, when we think about the humiliation of the Son as we move into Holy Week, the humiliation is precisely in the fact that as God, He became the servant of us all. Isn't that amazing? God became your servant. And, and He demonstrated that the night before he died by taking, we'll see this Monday, Thursday, right? By taking out a towel and washing their feet. And you, I just love Peter. I mean, Peter's like, no, oh, you can't do that, Lord. He says, well, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't serve you, if the Lord doesn't become your servant, as this will be fully displayed tomorrow, Peter, if I can't serve you, then you can't have a part of me and my kingdom. <laughs> what does Peter say? Well, then give me a whole body bath, right? <laughs> Top to bottom. I like that about Peter. So, no better point of, or portrait of the humiliation of our, of our Savior than Isaiah 53. Can we just look at this a little bit? I realize our time is pressing away. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Have you ever wondered who this who is? And we've heard Isaiah 53 for a long time. Who has believed our report? Who is our? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's talking this out here? Now, I, I won't go into details here, but I, I have a pretty strong hunch, right? Um, I think this is true, what I'm about to say. That the speaking voice of Isaiah 53 are these figures that will emerge later in the book of Isaiah who have recognized in retrospect that what the servant did was true and what the servant did was true for them, right? For them. They are the heralds. They are the ones who recognize that the servant was obedient and that the servant is connected to God's divine plan. They are the ones who are heralding the message in Isaiah 52, 7. They're announcing and pointing the way to the Father by the Son. That's the who. Who has believed our message? That's those who on the far side of the servant's vicarious work on their behalf they're the ones who recognize that that is true and that that's true for, for them. And that's a, I don't know why this is happening, it's kind of a prayer that's coming to my own mind lately as I think about various people in my life. Lord, let so-and-so believe that your gospel is true 
and that it's true for them, right? Not just a belief that, but also a belief in. We need both. A belief that it's true, and not that it's just some abstract truth that I can mentally and intellectually assent to, but it's also something that I believe in. I put my whole stock into that, into that reality. They're heralds. They're heralds of, of the message. They're witnesses. They're bony fingers pointing away from themselves to this servant. And look how the servant is described. He, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. I mean, what a great image. Um, we, in the house that we live in, in the south side, um, apparently the people who lived there, two, peop- two families before us, was an older couple, and the people in the neighborhood described them as knees and bottoms. Right, knees and bottoms. Why? Because whenever you went by the house, they were in the garden, Knees and bottoms, right? I mean, just, we, had, we had the Birmingham Beautiful sign out there, you know. They were always in the garden. That, that Birmingham Beautiful sign is not there anymore, by the way. They, <laughs> they, they, took, they took that down. Um, but just incredible. We, we find bulbs all the time. Just like, well, I bet that's something really important, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> you, you green thumbs, I apologize. We've done a lot of murder, a lot of murder. Um, but you know what a root out of dry ground looks like? It's not pretty. It's... This servant figure is marked by uncomeliness. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Now, I don't have a dog in the fight on these new Jesus movies. right? I mean, uh, you, you know, whatever. Um, but I have seen that his, the History Channel one. And Is there a new one that's out right now? I, I think there's that one. They had this Portuguese actor. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this guy? He's too good looking. Have you seen that? It's like Fabio, Jesus Fabio or something. That, that, can't, that cannot be right. He's too handsome. Have you seen this guy? I mean, it's. Anyway. He's not someone that we would initially look at and say, I'm drawn to that. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, the cry of dereliction is exhibit A of that. He knows what it is to be abandoned by God, and he knows what it is, Psalm 22, to identify himself with the whole history of righteous suffering. He was marked by sorrow. He was also marked by vicarious suffering for us. Verses 5 to 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I mean, the imagery here is of our sins weighing down on him to the point of breaking him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. The human flourishing that we're after, the human wholeness that we want so badly, has been purchased on account of our own sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is place-taking. That's the term that I like the best. Place-taking. And this is the way, by the way, in which the gospel does its own smashing kind of work. We know that the law does its smashing kind of work, showing us our inability. But do you realize as well that the gospel has its smashing kind of work too? And the smashing part of the gospel 
is when we look on the cross and we see the suffering Savior dying and bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders and we recognize those aren't just the abstract sins of the world that are on his shoulders, those are my sins that are on his shoulders. This is a personal interaction between me both an individual and corporately involved in the whole life of the church that recognizes that what's going on there in Calvary is not an abstract entity in the history of humanity that has to do with me and it has to do with me right now. Martin Luther was brilliant on this. We look at the suffering Savior and it crushes us. It wounds us. Until we can press behind that scene and see the smile of God behind it. And recognize that that is the love of God on display for you. It crushes you and it makes you alive at the same time. He bore our sins. He bore my sins. He bore your sins. Look at verse 10. Here's a verse that keep you up at night. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Or... To put it another way, if you don't mind me glossing it this way, it was the delight, that's the term there, of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's so much to reflect on here, especially as this relates to the reality of human suffering as well. I like this about the book of Job. I like it and I don't, I should say. And that is, Job never questioned throughout the whole book of Job that God was at the center of his problems. That was just assumed. Now, what are we going to do with that? But that was just assumed. And here, when we come to the cross, we see that Jesus is not there at some happen chance. It was the will and delight of the Lord to do this. Now, we're not talking here about delight in our sense of delight. But it was his eternal purpose to do this for the sake of the salvation of humanity. He did, he crushed him. Why? If we continue to read verse 10, because he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of his suffering, he will see his own progeny. I'll put this in terms of Genesis again. The servant suffering on the cross, I'm going to just put that in right terms, right? The servant on the cross sees his offspring, which is the ultimate making good on God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make an offspring for you, a seed, and it's going to be like the sands of the sea. And the way in which Isaiah refracts that promise in Genesis chapter 12 is through the work of the servant on the cross. That's how the servant makes good. That's how God makes good on his promise to Abraham to have a seed of his own. He sees his own offspring. He sees us, his children. Again, I, I, I think this is right. right? And I don't hope this isn't too interpretively creative. But I, I think this is right. But I'll give you that proviso. But have you ever found it strange in the gospel accounts where Jesus looks at the, the beloved disciple and he says, woman, behold your son. And then he says, um, so, you know, disciple, your mother. And from that day on, she went into his house. And the next verse is, and after this. 
Now, I wish it was a plural there, after these things. Because it could have been a lot. But it's not. It's after that particular episode. The reorientation of the family of God. That he then says, it is finished. And into your hands I commend your spirit. After this, after he looks at the disciple and his mother and he reorients the family. Then he bows his head and he has completed his work. I have to believe that has something to do with Isaiah 53.10. There he is in, the, in extremis, in the throes of his suffering of the sins of the world, and he must see his offspring. Here's the reconstituted family of God before him, the disciple and the mother coming together, and they were together again as a kind of microcosm of the offspring that he was producing for the whole of humanity. And after that, He said, it is finished. So when we think about Isaiah 53, I think it's worth reflecting as we move into Holy Week, for you and for me, that our own faith, your faith and my faith, corresponds to this self-humiliation or the self-abdication of Christ himself. If I can refer to Karl Barth one more time. Bart calls this the obedience of humility. The obedience of humility. I'm not talking about a kind of um, faux lack of self-referentiality. I'm not talking necessarily about prideful self-denial, which only uh, makes our own sort of internal desire for glory still present. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about a genuine humility that is marked at the foot of the cross by a recognition that we have nothing to offer and everything to receive. Nothing to offer and everything to receive. Because we are his righteous offspring. So as we enter into this season of Holy Week together as a church and also as individuals and families, it's an opportunity for us, I think, to walk into the obedience of humility and and continual recognition that what happened there on the cross is true, and that it's true for you and for me. So, Lord, seal these things we pray on our hearts and our minds. Lord, where we doubt, or we're marked by doubt, fill us, Lord, with hope. Fill us, hope, Lord, with the belief that you have entered into the world to redeem us and to draw us back to yourself. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself. We're so marked by pride. We're so marked, Lord, by a spiritual inclination to think that we can achieve on our own. Thank you, Lord, for being the A to the Z of our salvation in you. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.